0: Hello, Radio Land podcast, fill and all the ships at sea. My name is Medea Ocher, and you are listening to the Larb Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host Kate Wolfe, editor at large. Hi, Kate. Hey, Medea. And today we will be speaking with Vanessa Davis, who is a cartoonist, illustrator, and author of the book Spaniel Rage. <laughs>
1: I'm Kate Wolf, and I'm here with my co-host, Medea Ocher, and today we're talking with Vanessa Davis. Vanessa is an illustrator and cartoonist who lives in Los Angeles. Her work has appeared in the Paris Review Online, where she's a daily correspondent, the New York Times, SpongeBob Comics, Tablets, and Amplify Education. Her books include Make Me a Woman and Spaniel Rage, which is being re-released this winter by Drawn and Quarterly Press. Vanessa, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So Spaniel Rage is taken from a sketchbook that you kept when you were living in New York in 2003. Yes. So is that when you started making comics?
2: Yes. Spaniel Rage kind of collects everything that I started drawing as soon as I started drawing comics. I was newly out of school and working in New York, and I couldn't figure out a way to be artistic and make art, and I figured that I could do something like this a little bit every day in my sketchbook and make little books and give them out and meet people and make comics. But then it, you know, it got bigger and bigger. Uh, because you had studied
1: art, you went to art school, right?
2: Yeah, I graduated from a state university from University of Florida, but I studied fine art all through college. And also I had an unusual long art education, starting in seventh grade, Uh where I went to a magnet school in West Palm Beach. And so I considered myself a pretty serious artist from like age 11 onward. And so I never studied comics or thought I would make comics, but I had more of a fine art background. And did you read comics? I mean, I read comics like how the average kid reads comics. I read Archie and Betty and Veronica. My mom actually had this idea that maybe I should draw comics. So she brought me to this comics convention it must have been in like 1987 or 88 and this was like a tiny comics convention in west palm beach florida in 1987 or 88 so it was in like the conference hall of this best western or something and it was just it was superhero comics and just stuff that i had no idea what i was even looking at and why did
0: your mom want you to draw comics
2: I think she was always coming up with ideas for things that my talents might be suited for. So she thought about me drawing comics. She thought about me designing
1: prosthetics. <laughs> wow, she, <laughs> designing prosthetics. Wow. she thought about me, you know, doing greeting cards. You know, she just was... She saw that you had an aptitude for language and writing as well as drawing.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, she was a journalist and I was a really verbal kid. So I'm sure that must have been her thinking behind the suggestion.
1: How would you describe your style of drawing in your comics? I would describe it as pretty loose and natural and kind of a balance of rough and messy and tidy and precise. Right. So you weren't looking to comics per se for your influence when you started off. So what were your influences in terms of image-wise?
2: Well, They pretty much were the same all throughout my studies. I studied painting and textile design before I started thinking about comics. And so I loved pattern and I loved color. I loved Matisse and I loved Alice Neal and I loved David Hockney. Mm. I really, one thing that I liked about all of those artists is that they kind of portrayed scenes from their daily lives. And I think one thing about art, if I'm really being honest, that I was drawn to was kind of like the artistic lifestyle. As mm-hmm. depicted in the work and then also reading about artists and they just seem to have great lives, you know, like traveling to a Greek island and right. drawing their boyfriend, like laying with his butt showing, you know, like yeah. in front of the ocean. Like <laughs> it's was a like, dream a dream for all of us. <laughs> yeah. I was like I was like, okay, give me some of that. So I think it was like a combination of like lifestyle mixed with decorative elements, mixed with narrative. And when I was studying art, one thing that I always came up against was I couldn't figure out what was my medium. I wasn't really like a painter's painter, and I definitely wasn't really anything else. But when I started making comics, I realized that I think that autobiography and writing about my life and my observations has been the thing that kind of has continued all throughout everything that I've tried.
0: And could you give an example of the kind of scene daily sort of interaction that you include in Spaniel Rage so listeners could have an idea?
2: Well, when I drew Spaniel Rage, I was in my early 20s, and I was living in New York, and I had a job at the American Folk Art Museum. So it's a great museum. It was a wonderful job. It was a really great experience. But I was making like $20,000 living in Brooklyn. I have no money. So most of my scenes that I was drawing in Spaniel Rage were sitting on the subway and weird things that I saw or things at work or things at the museum or things with boys that I was trying to date. It was pretty run-of-the-mill, kind of 20-something
1: city dweller life. It's interesting mm-hmm. that a lot of the comics in Spaniel Rage are kind of about the process of them being made and drawing and kind of, oh, I haven't drawn for a while, and or oh, this is hard, or even actually pointing out little details that they said, this didn't really look like this. <laughs> And comics seem like they are kind of unique in that way. There's a lot of meta discussion of the actual process of making them that the other mediums really don't have.
2: Yeah. What drew me to comics was, I think, because I didn't have such a entrenched background in comics. And I had this fine art perspective. In art school, people who were going to become painters or people who were going to become sculptors had to think of kind of the art world and networking and being a business person and having craftsmanship and like being really slick and presentable. And in comics, the angle that I kind of came into was independent publishing, people making their own zines. It was a lot more punky and sloppy and no one was looking. In fact, one of my comics heroes, Tom Hart, told me, nobody's looking and no one cares, uh-huh. <laughs> which at the time was definitely... Like poetry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sorry, poets. <laughs> yeah. But that's kind of one of those wide open frontier art forms where you can do anything. And so I kind of took advantage of that. I knew that I didn't know how to draw comics, quote unquote. I didn't know anything about nibs or what ink to use or how to set up pages or different grid organization or anything like that. But I knew I was able to tell a story and I could draw and I could write so I could just figure it out. So I think that that's interesting that you bring it up because I think figuring out how I draw and what I was going to draw about and what I was going to say was kind of the main plot, if there is a plot in right. Spangled Rage, more than anything. Because ha- nothing really that exciting was happening like
1: in my actual life. Right. So I think that makes sense. So you say you started drawing and then it kind of took off from there. So what was your path in terms of how you started to get stuff out?
2: Well, I really do think that the diary comic format is a really great Way to kind of find your way into just figuring out what you want to write about or what I want to write about, what I want to draw, how I want to draw it. Comics, you have to do a lot of repetition of characters and scenes. So you figure out what to include and what not to include and kind of more like symbolic imagery. So maybe someone wore boots that had fringes and buckles and, you know, wrinkles in them, but it's kind of more iconic and recognizable to draw like a boot shape. And you just make those decisions. I am really interested in detail, and obviously there's room for that in comics, but sometimes you make those decisions about what to keep and what to get rid of. And the diary format was good for that because every day you could start over and attack a different aspect.
0: And were you ever pushed back in terms of taking your own life as your subject and really focusing on the sort of daily interaction? Did somebody say to you, you should really be focusing on politics?
2: Or is there pressure of that
0: kind in the yeah, comics
2: world? definitely. I mean, especially as comics got more popular, there was a bubble, you know, um, there was a publishing bubble. People were getting big advances and they were having their books called graphic novels. And there was a lot of literary pressure on cartoonists to kind of meet this expectation that we were just as good as real books kind of thing. And so there was a lot of discussion about what constituted real writing or real storytelling. And I mean, just mostly interpersonally, but I think there were also articles about it or people's, you know, opinion pieces and stuff. And it made me self-conscious because I was a beginning cartoonist. People would describe it as like my entry into writing is writing autobiography. And even though I was new, it insulted me <laughs> because people write autobiography all the time, like right. for their whole careers. Right. But it's funny because I was like whining to my editor at Drawn and Quarterly about it. And he was like, Vanessa, what are the biggest comics, the most successful and the most important comics, both critically and commercially, have been like Mouse, Fun Home. They're all autobiography. And I was like, oh, that's not that I ever expect to be doing a book of that level of success. But it just was like, Okay, you know what? I'm just not going to worry about what other people think I should be writing about. Right. Yeah.
1: How did you start putting out your work, just sending it to magazines or what was your... Well, when I was living in New York, before I got my job at the
2: museum, I saw a sign for this festival called the Mocha Comics Festival, and I knew I had become aware of a few different cartoonists, and I saw that they were going to be there. So I figured what I could do is I could draw a comic every day for a month, and then I could Xerox it at work on the Xerox machine, uh-huh. and then I would go to Mocha, and I would go meet the cartoonists that I liked and like see if anyone wanted my book, and so I did that, And it was great (laughs) because part of it also was that I was like a 23-year-old kid, young woman, and I was new to New York and I had some friends, but I really wanted to meet people, the whole lifestyle thing. I wanted to like meet other cartoonists. And in art school, I had gone to, I had studied painting and all the painters were like really serious and, you know, and the fiber artists were like really serious. (laughs) I wanted to meet edgy, but funny and sweet, smart, literate people and i knew that comics was kind of like the way in and so it was sort of like half an artistic pursuit as well as a social pursuit Uh Mm -hmm. and so just going there i met a bunch of people and i got emails back because there's a big legacy of in independent comics of pen palling and writing and yeah and like trading books and stuff and so i got everything that i wanted on that front from that experience but yeah i just went and then i met people and then it went from there
1: And how long before your work was appearing in publication, more mainstream publications?
2: It was pretty fast. I truthfully had every expectation that I would just be working in nonprofit and making my little comic books as my hobby, you know, for like 10 years, and then maybe approach a comics publisher if they might want it to put together a compilation if I ended up doing a good job over the decade that I expected to be doing it. But I put out a couple of issues of Spaniel Rage, maybe over like a year or so, and then they caught the attention of a small publisher, and he was working with other cartoonists with anthologies and just meeting people. I met Megan Kelso in New York, and she was putting together an anthology of women cartoonists. So I would say it went pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I
0: actually wanted to ask you, so what is it like being a woman and a cartoonist? What is the community like?
2: I think it's pretty great. It's interesting because obviously comics has been kind of like a male community. And certainly in mainstream comics, I think that kind of becomes more of an issue because it's like an actual industry. Not, <laughs> I mean, obviously my kind of comics is an industry too, but it's more independent. It's more interpersonal. I had as a young woman as kind of clueless and new, I did kind of run into like unfortunate situations with people who weren't used to even dealing with women. I think oh. I think part of my acceptance into comics was that I was a woman and my whole group of friends in New York were all women cartoonists. And that was really great. But I think people were excited for new voices in comics Mm -hmm. and especially from women because there weren't hadn't been that many yet. There were definitely like several very important women cartoonists, but not a lot. Now it seems like there's a lot more, a lot more, which is amazing. But for me, it's been, I feel lucky because I've had a really good experience on the front of being female.
1: You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation.
0: This is Medea Ocher with the LARB Radio Hour and we have Martabel Wasserman, an artist, writer, and curator living in Los Angeles and she is back in the studio with us to recommend a book. Martabel, what book are you recommending?
3: I would like to recommend a book I recently reread, Sarah Schulman's 1990 book, People in Trouble. It's named after a Wilhelm Reich book of the same name. It is a story of A married couple and the woman's lesbian lover and it's told through three different perspectives in New York during the AIDS crisis it reminds me very much of my experience in Los Angeles right now in the sense that I feel like there are two cities that we're living in there's the city of homelessness and then there's a city that we live in and it's really about how these people are navigating their lives while there's extreme crisis of poverty in New York City There's the AIDS crisis. It's a very different moment for queerness. That's really interesting. That's the thing that has probably changed the most. But what drove me to reread it is that there is a character in it that is sort of a Donald Trump character. And the title is a work of art in the book that deals directly with this character. Will you tell us a little bit about this character that drove you to reread the book? his name is Ronald Horn and he's a real estate mogul who's basically taking over apartments of people with AIDS, people dying with AIDS. He has these horrible colonialist hotel ventures where people have to like dress in this safari garb and fan people, etc. So like <laughs> this kind of Las Vegas in New York. Um, Sounds pretty accurate. And as these characters are going through their own interpersonal, intellectual, and political dramas in the context of Homelessness and the AIDS crisis in New York City. He's this kind of looming figure who's swooping up all of this real estate. And he ends up playing a big role in the end. And what brought you to this book initially? How did you discover it? I discovered Sarah Schulman's book when I was working on Act Up. Mm -hmm. And I read it in college very quickly because I just devoured the personal, interpersonal narrative. So I was happy to reread it and think of it in a more political context.
0: Thank you so much, Marta Bell. Will you tell us the name of the book again and the author?
3: People in Trouble by Sarah Shulman. Thanks again.
1: You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our interview with Vanessa Davis, author of Spaniel Range. Something I really like about Spaniel Rage is that I can really see a through line from, in terms of women, a kind of like narrative of the young woman in New York from then to now. But then even in the comic, you, there's a part where you're reading like Slaves of New York in your underwear or something. And you (laughs) say, oh, it kind of reminded me of my life. Yeah. (laughs) And I think. You know, the touchstone now for, like, young girls in their 20s in New York are TV shows like Girls or Broad City. Yeah. And both of those shows are known for kind of portraying their characters not always in the most flattering light, either the way they look physically or the kind of their moral character. And something I really liked in the book is that it it is really revealing. You draw yourself not always in a super flattering way. It's vulnerable. There's kind of some gross stuff in it too. <laughs> and I wondered if that was something that you, that you remember as making a kind of conscious decision, like that you were going to do that, or it was just came naturally that you just felt like you were being really honest. I and mean, what kind of reaction you got to that aspect of
4: it?
2: I don't know. It's interesting because on the one hand, you know, I say that I, part of my intention behind making these comics is making friends. So you'd think that I would, and a lot of autobiographical comics do fall into a trap where people are just trying to show how they're like advertisements for themselves. Like, look at how, <laughs> right. this funny thing I said, or look at how cute I am. <laughs> and so I think that even though I obviously don't mind some level of attention, I'm not a completely unself-aware, completely comfortable with attention kind of person. So I think as I was doing it, I asked myself questions about what I was writing about. And for me, it's always been rewarding, to be honest, and especially as a young person, There's not really, like, anything I had to hide. It's like, so what? I have a zit. Or, like, I'm a slob. Or, like, you know, I was mean to someone by accident. I think adults kind of have a lot more struggle with being honest and open because adult life is much less forgivable, you know, in a lot of ways. I say with hindsight, life as a 38-year-old is different than a 23-year-old and what you're supposed to kind of have under control. When you're 23, you're like, I'm a kid. I'm supposed to be making mistakes. So it was great because I think a lot of people appreciated the honesty of it. But if I'm being honest now, it was sort of low stakes, to be honest. Right. Mm -hmm. And for me, I've never really been that good at pretending to be anything other than I am. That's not one of my skills. So I just figured I'd let it all out and see what happened. And it wasn't that bad. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It's really funny.
2: I was wondering if
0: there was something about comics themselves that you thought lends itself to that kind of honesty because it seems to me like as you were saying before the larger industry is really supernatural right there's mutants and heroes and superman and this seems very much on the other end of the spectrum so what is it about comics occupying these two various forms of storytelling
2: i think it kind of speaks to comics's ability to like its range Obviously, comics are a great medium to explore the supernatural because you can just draw it. You don't have to right. film it, <laughs> although obviously that's easy to do now. But, you know, you could draw anything. So anything is possible. But likewise, it's an intimate action. It's kind of humble. You know, it's pencil on paper at the beginning. And for me, I think also it is a struggle to write about oneself. And depending on your intentions, I think it can be hard to make that interesting to other people. And Images add an immediate buffer for. Right, um, right. It's not just like a wall of text about yourself. It invites the v- reader in with images and colors and recognizable scenes.
1: Something I was looking at your series that was just published over the summer and fall on the Paris Review Daily sometimes the stories, they would kind of diverge and come back. And it didn't seem, I had a sense that you might not have, and maybe this was just because you're good, but that you didn't always know where you were going as you (laughs) were drawing. And that's why I think comics are so interesting, is that it's not always told so linearly that things kind of can go off and come back in a way that it would be harder to do a straight text. So how much do you plan things out ahead of time?
2: Oh, everything is so... Pla- no totally <laughs> <like that>. no. <laughs> For the comics that I did over the summer, I had a two-week turnaround. So I was doing a five-page comic every two weeks, which for me is like lightning pace. It was a really challenging kind of deadline. But it was sort of great because it opened up that opportunity where I could do anything and just see if it worked. And if it didn't, it was just a blog post. But I was able to... It's five pages, but it's like 10 sentences at the most. It's pretty short. So if you take someone off track and talk about beavers or talk about this thing that happened when you were 10, it's like two seconds out of the story before they get back to it. So I just figured I can do what I want and I'll get to the point when I... Like You'll see the point at the end. It's like in a minute and a half when you're done reading this. I've been sitting here for like four days, you know, like crying, (laughs) like agonizing over this story. It takes you like two minutes to read it. You'll just kind of have to deal with it if it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere for like five seconds. I had sort of this angry attitude about it when I was in the middle of it. And I think that kind of shows through in a couple of the pieces.
1: But I mean, are you plotting out, okay, so now it's like, here I'll be talking about my father and then I'll cut to the thing about beavers or...
2: I think those pieces sort of mirrored the way that I make connections in my mind in general. So I would have kind of a theme that I wanted to talk about in there would be like an event that made me think about a theme. And then I would think about the other things that in my mind are connected that support my theory. And so I just had to figure out a way to include all three of those things, however divergent they might seem. And then at the end, maybe you'd see how they all make my point. Right. So it was half intentional because I would make an outline of what I was going to write about. But then the way... That they came together in the story was sometimes were improvised, but I just figured it, it would be fine.
5: And <laughs> <laughs> it, it was. It, it was fun. really great. Yeah. Thanks.
2: Can you explain why the book is called Spaniel Rage? Yes. So at the time, you know, I was new to comics. I was reading all of these underground, aggressive '90s comics, like Hate and Dirty Plot, and you know, all of these kind of tough-sounding like punk comics names. And I'm not like a tough punk person, really, but I kind of wanted to be a part of that whole world. And my friend Jason was dating a dog therapist, and he was telling me about this syndrome called Spaniel Rage Syndrome, which is actually really horrible. And it comes from like overbreeding where dogs will go into this epileptic violent seizure and like hurt people. But just the idea of it, of like this fluffy Spaniel that had been like shampooed and blown dry and put bows in its hair and it's it's like groomed to be like man's companion, like a pretty, happy, pleasant companion to men, you know, and then all of a sudden having this unwelcome emotional outburst. I just mm. as like a young woman, mm. I felt like I could relate to that. Punk.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um you know one thing I like about the book so much is that like I was saying, it has this kind of timeless quality but I also, there's these subtle references to like the early aughts, which is not a decade that's much mythologized because it didn't have a strong, I mean, maybe in 10 years people will be going back to the early aughts, the way they're doing to the 90s now, (laughs) but there's subtle things about it that really place it in time for me. There's one part where you're looking at Friendster on the computer. I noticed that. uh, Or, um, (laughs) People are talking a lot on actual phones, not cell phones. And I noticed actually with the Paris Review Daily thing that you were bringing in technology, social media, some reference to that. And I wondered how much technology plays into the kind of comics you write now and how well-suited you think that comics are to portray technology. It's interesting
2: because I think that you don't really want to find yourself Drawing yourself in front of a computer screen or a phone all the time. I think that's kind of a drag. Yeah. But, but it also is a real portrayal of modern life, which kind of says something about modern life. Right. The first piece that I did for the Paris Review was about reading about another cartoonist's death on Facebook. And it happened to be during the same week that there were all of these simultaneous police killings of black men and the news around the country. And that feeling of helplessness that you have when you hear bad news or when you hear about someone being killed or dying was kind of amplified by me just like sitting in my living room reading about it on Facebook. And I guess the amplification of that feeling was kind of what I wanted to explore in that piece. I mean, I think comics are good to explore anything, but I do think that visually it's not very dynamic to portray. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting how that will unfold. I also think that because people are, I know that I personally am online a lot more than I was when I was making Spaniel Rage. I didn't have, I had Friendster. It took like 20 minutes to get onto Friendster. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you waste more time. Like I think if I was 23, I don't know that I would be able to carve out the same amount of time to draw comics because I would be like scrolling through Instagram, you know. I mean, obviously there's a lot of young cartoonists who are working really hard, but to speak for myself, I don't know that I would have, I don't know what would have happened.
1: Well, my last question, I just wondered, are there any secret words, lingo among comic artists that they use to either talk about each other, to talk about, you know, aspects of drawing or any lingo that our listeners should know about that would make them more in with the comic artists? (laughs)
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting how it comes up because I think, especially nowadays, there are because artsy and alternative comics are such a non lucrative pursuit, everyone has other jobs. And so there's kind of a range of professionalism that people bring to comics. You know, there's a lot of people who work in television and a lot of people who have high profile illustration clients, and then people who like, I don't know, there's a range. So it's interesting. One big thing that everyone has talked about is what to call each other. And that's always a big question, both within comics and outside of comics. And that kind of came up when the whole graphic novel boom happened. I think everyone has a different opinion about it. I've always been happy to just call myself a cartoonist because I feel like it covers a range of possible forms that the work might take. And I'm open to all the forms that they might take. But I think other people who write novels, graphic novels, like are very happy to be called graphic novelists and then also sometimes being called a cartoonist can be confusing because cartooning is usually refers to animation whereas comics refers to paper comics but then you don't want to call someone a comic because that's a comedian <laughs> <laughs> so the lingo is always changing and it seems to be pretty subjective from person to person
1: we've been speaking with Vanessa Davis about her re-released book Spaniel Rage which is out this winter from Drawn and Quarterly Press thanks Vanessa for coming on the show Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you. And to close out the show, it's time for this week's Classic Poetry Drop with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner.
5: Our poem this week is by Emily Dickinson, the great, late Emily Dickinson called Wild Night. Well, it's not called anything, right? Her poems didn't have titles, but uh, often called Wild Nights. The thing that always gets me about Dickinson is just how short her line is and how incredibly difficult it is to restrict yourself that way. I feel like it's the poetic equivalent of a straitjacket or trying to breathe on the top of Everest. It's just she's trying to get so much into these three or four syllables lines and then rhyme them and well let's listen to wild nights
6: wild nights wild nights by emily dickinson wild nights wild nights where i with thee wild nights should be our luxury futile the winds to a heart in port done with the compass done with the chart rowing in eden ah the sea might I but more tonight in thee.
4: That was Wild Nights, read by Patti LuPone. And if you don't know who Patti LuPone is, you are not my friend. Now,
5: <laughs> But let's listen to a, another Dickinson poem, because one of the things I found really surprising about listening to this collection of poetry is that the poems that I thought I knew really well, some of these poems surprised me by what I w- didn't remember about them. Here's maybe one of her most famous poems.
6: Because I Could Not Stop for Death by Emily Dickinson Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure, too, for his civility. We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring, We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun, or rather, he passed us. The dews grew quivering and chill, for only Gossamer, my gown, my tippet, only jewel. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice but a mound. Since then, to centuries. And yet each feels shorter than the day I
4: first surmised.
6: The horses' heads were toward eternity.
4: That was I Could Not Stop for Death by Emily Dickinson, even though it is an unnamed poem, as all of her poems are, read by Kate Melgrew.
5: From the collection Poetic License, produced by Glenn Roven.
4: To the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and Questionable Moral Center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. I'm Laurie Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening.